take a spiritual practice, we undertake a practice such as the meditation that we've been doing, it's not really about adopting a dogmatic set of beliefs or an adherence to a certain doctrine. It's not about even having a new and different religious identification. In that sense, it's not about proclaiming oneself as a Buddhist. It's certainly not about carving out an identity that has an element of separation or sense of us and them. A couple of years ago, I was traveling with some friends in Asia just after the time of the Gulf War, and there was renewed security at all of these different airports. The last stop we made in Asia was in Thailand. And as we were about to go and check in, somebody pulled us aside and started asking us a whole series of questions very intensely. There were at first the usual questions of, you know, did you pack your bags yourself and has your luggage left your site since you packed it and all of that. And then the man got a little more personal and he said, well, what did you do last night? I thought, you know, and told him. And then, apropos of nothing that I could see, he looked at me and he said, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. And that was the last question. We just went on through. We went through immigration and um, so maybe 20 minutes later, we're at the place where our check-on baggage is being checked through the x-ray machine. And when we had come from Nepal on our way to Thailand, and in Nepal we'd bought a number of Buddha images, and they were all in our carry-on baggage. So there they were, lit up on the screen of the x-ray machine. And they looked really beautiful. And the woman standing there doing the checking, she looked at me and she said, are you Buddhist? And I said, yes. <laughs> and we walked on through. And I sat on the plane and I thought that that was probably the most condensed period in my life in which I'd been asked my religious affiliation twice and said yes both times. And I reflect often on the fact that the practice is not about becoming a Buddhist. It's not about having a name. It's not about having a, a fabricated identity that we somehow use, that somehow keeps us apart from others. What the practice is about is discovering a, a deep and abiding happiness that is quite unconventional. This happiness is not so easy to locate. It is not difficult to feel once we know where to look. But that is the key. That is the, the mind turning of knowing where to look. This happiness is about peace and it's about love. And it's about the inner transformation of our being from these states as well as the natural radiance, the natural manifestation of states of peace and love without contrivance, without a kind of self-conscious declaration of ourselves as being spiritual or loving or peaceful. The practice is about what happens within us and around us as we touch this very unusual kind of happiness. 
One of my favorite stories from the history of Buddhism is about an emperor named Ashoka, who perhaps more than any other figure in the history of Buddhism is credited with the fact that Buddhism became a world religion. Ashoka was an emperor in northern India, just about 250 years after the time of the Buddha. In the early years of his career, it is said that he was very bloodthirsty and very greedy, and his empire kept expanding as he wanted more and more territory. It's also said that he was an extremely unhappy man. One day, after a particularly terrible battle that he had ordered in order to acquire some more territory, he was walking along the battlefield. He was walking in the midst of the carnage, seeing all of the bodies, seeing all of the bloodshed that had happened because of his own desire, his own greed. He was feeling terrible seeing what he had created. And it said that just at that time, a Buddhist monk came walking across that battlefield. And he didn't say a word, but his being, his demeanor was radiant. He looked very happy and very peaceful. And Ashoka was struck by the thought that here he was, who had absolutely everything in the worldly sense, all of the possessions a person could want, and he was miserable. And here was this monk who had nothing. He had only the robes that he was wearing, the bowl that he was carrying, and he looked so happy. So Ashoka decided to follow him, and he asked him just that. Why is it that you seem so happy? In response, the monk taught him some of the principles of the Buddha's teaching, some of the practice. Ashoka became very devoted and changed the entire nature of his kingdom. He, instead of causing harm to people, would try to help them. He would build hospitals. He would make sure people were fed. He wouldn't allow certain kinds of animals to be hunted. He planted trees. He really took care of people. And it was actually Ashoka's son and daughter who brought the teachings of the Buddha from India to Sri Lanka. From Sri Lanka, the teachings spread to Burma, Thailand, and around the entire world. I like the story so much, I think, because of the sense that it conveys that happiness itself can be a revolutionary act, that one person's happiness actually changed the course of history. Because of the radiance of that one being, all of these years later, somehow, we have access to a teaching. Happiness, in this sense, is a revolutionary act because the ground of it itself is revolutionary. It's not an ordinary kind of happiness, which is the experience of pleasure. That is certainly very nice, and we all like it when we have pleasant experience. But if our deepest, most abiding sense of happiness is that pleasure, we're in trouble, because that happiness will be very transitory. Last summer, I spent a little bit of time in Europe with a family, friends of mine, and there was a four-year-old child there. And every time something happened that did not go his way, somebody said no to him, something like that, he would start screaming 
nobody in this house loves me anymore. And I thought, I recognize that mind state. <laughs> There's a little bit of that that I see. You know, things change. Things aren't working so well. All of a sudden, the whole universe has collapsed. There's no more love left. There's a different kind of happiness, which really is a sense of peace. This is the happiness that the Buddha described as being the greatest happiness, to know peace, to know an abiding peace that's not distorted, it's not changed by changing conditions. It's not so fragile. And there's a word in the Buddhist psychology that translates as thusness or suchness. It means that the totality of one's being is present. We're not fragmented and we're not divided. There's not some little part of ourselves waiting somewhere else for something else to be happening or something different to be happening. Our entire being comes together. And that is what is so healing. In my very early days of doing this particular technique of meditation, I was instructed, just as has been suggested here, to try to keep the mental noting going throughout the day so that I was paying attention to whatever was my predominant experience throughout the day. I was living in India in this small compound. I found that as I was walking around throughout the day, the single most common mental note that I was making was the word waiting. I was going waiting, 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 waiting. So that one day I just said to myself, what are you waiting for? (laughs) And I realized that I was waiting for something important enough to happen or pleasurable enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so I could pay attention to it. And it was like my life was a little bit like a tape recorder with a pause button on. I was waiting for life to happen. When we are not that way, when we are fully present with whatever is going on, that is a powerful unification of our being. That is what is transforming, both within ourselves and for those around us. That much presence, that much completeness of attention has a very intense effect on those who encounter it. To not be divided, to not be fragmented, is another way of talking about being completely present, which is another way of talking about to love, to love truly. Not necessarily love in a sentimental or flowery sense, not even with necessarily a magnificent gesture, but a very simple and direct expression of the loving heart. I have a friend who once traveled in India and went to Sikkim, which is a protectorate of India's, to see His Holiness the Karmapa, who's a very renowned Tibetan monk, and died some years ago. And to go to Sikkim took some effort. One needed special permission from the Indian government, and at certain points in the journey, you had to rent a jeep and ford rivers, and it was very arduous and difficult. When he got there, he said that the most extraordinary thing about being there was that the Karmapa, 
who was a very eminent, <clears throat> renowned monk, treated him as though his visit there were one of the most important things that had ever happened in his lifetime. He was just so completely present so that when my friend describes this experience, he talks about it as the feeling of being completely loved. Just from the total presence of the Karmapa's being. He first told me this story and I thought about how many conversations I have with people where I'm kind of there. I'm sort of there and I'm sort of thinking about the things that I need to do. How true that is of all of us that we can give such a tremendous gift just from the being so present and how rarely we do that. That is what can transform us and that is what can transform our relationships with those around us. It's like a very different way of experiencing life or experiencing happiness. It's almost like looking into a mirror. When we look into that much presence or that much wholeness, there's an act of recognition that often goes on. It's like we're recognizing ourselves. We're recognizing what's possible. I don't know if you've had in your life the experience of meeting somebody who you felt was unconditionally loving. They were simply there. It's a very powerful feeling. Sometimes when I have met people like that in my life, even just in the first few moments of being in their presence, it's almost like I awaken for a moment and I say, oh right, that's who I really am. I am just that. We are all just that. That happens for us when we encounter that intensity of love. It happens also for us in a moment of our own awakening, a moment of being undistracted, a moment of being perfectly present. Again, we are reminded of what is most fundamentally true about ourselves. This is a poem from the Chinese tradition. 10,000 flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. That is really the heart of the meditation, to clear the mind of unnecessary things to remember gladly the love of which we are actually capable, the natural radiance and purity of our own minds. This should be the best season of our lives if this is what is actually happening. To rest fully in the present moment is the source of our happiness, which is so beautiful. We open to our own experience no matter what it is, and inevitably that opens us to others. It's as though we ourselves and all beings either overlook or are liberated by the truth, by the fact that every single one of us can be the Karmapa and every single one of us can be that monk walking across the battlefield. 
that our own happiness can change everything. We use the meditation in exactly this way, to clear the mind of unnecessary things. That is what we call the development or the experience of dispassion or peace or equanimity. It's very important and actually not so easy to understand what these words mean, a word like dispassion. When I think of detachment or dispassion as a quality, I think of it as being like the greatest state of honor that we can know. When we walk into a situation dispassionately, we're not walking in with a great hidden agenda. We're not walking in with a collection of things that we want and we feel we must have, or a collection of things that we're afraid of, we need to guard against. We're really there and we're open. We actually can allow things to be the way that they are without manipulation, without needing to get events to suit our own needs. There's a lot of honor in that. Dispassion is a state of sufficiency or completeness, which is the basis for being able to love. You know, if we have something and we feel a sense of sufficiency, then we know we can offer it, we can give it. But if we have something and we don't feel that it's enough, no matter what it is in the eyes of the world, or conventionally speaking, if we don't feel it's enough, we can't share it, we can't open, we can't give. That is why sufficiency is the basis for love. Dispassion in this way isn't a cold, hard state. It's a state of silence, it's a state of peace. And as Krishnamurti once said, there is no silence without love. True silence is love. It's what empowers us to fully connect because we don't need to pretend and we don't need to deny. We can see things as they actually are. And so it is quite full and alive. I was reading recently that there is a modern astronomical view of the world which says that everything in the universe is moving uniformly away from everything else in all directions into space. So that there is no one center point to the universe. There's no reference point. From one perspective, this could produce a very desolate feeling that there's no home. Everything's just moving away from everything else in all directions into space. But from another perspective, this very same view produces the understanding that it's all home, that we don't need a singular resting place for refuge, for safety. It's all home. And that is the state of dispassion or equanimity, where everything is home. We bring sufficiency wherever we go with that power of mind. Many years ago, Joseph and I visited India on our way from Sweden, where we had been teaching, to Australia, where we were going next to teach. We went to Calcutta because we had a teacher, this woman Deepama, who was quite elderly, and we thought that it was important that we visit her, visited her while we had a chance. 
So we went to Calcutta, and it turned out that this was the rainy season. I'd never been to Calcutta before in the rainy season. We went up to see her in her little room. We spent the whole afternoon and early evening in her room. And the whole time we were there, it was raining. It was pouring rain outside, which I didn't give a thought to as we were there. We went downstairs finally, and what I discovered was that in Calcutta in the rainy season, that when it rains that much, the sewers overflow. So we went downstairs, standing on the curb, and there was maybe two or three feet of sewage that we were going to have to walk through to try to get back to the hotel. So we're standing there, and I can remember Joseph looked at me and he said, well, this should be interesting. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, well, maybe if you're six foot three, this is going to be interesting, but I don't know, it's going to be so interesting. And sure enough, we stepped off the curb and it was absolutely disgusting. It was the most horrible experience. There were rats and it was, it was awful. Everything about it was awful. It smelled awful. It was terrifying. It was getting dark. It was a horrible experience. <laughs> Just a few days later, having lived through that, we were in Sydney, we were in Australia. And a friend took us to the Sydney Opera House for symphony. We were sitting there in the Sydney Opera House, which is an extraordinarily beautiful building right on the harbor. It's kind of an architectural marvel. Listening to the strains of Dvorak and Brahms, and everybody's wearing nice clothing and smells really nice. and Everything was so sweet. It was so wonderful and beautiful. I was sitting there thinking, What happened to Calcutta? Just before we went to the symphony, this friend took us out to dinner. She took us to one of those restaurants which seem to exist in most big cities, which are on top of very tall buildings, and they revolve around so that you get a panoramic view of the city as you're eating. And it was a beautiful meal. It was lovely food. It was very elegantly served, and there were these long sweeping vistas of Sydney. It was all quite pleasant. The next time this particular friend and I shared a meal, we were in Burma together. This was about five or six months later. The situation in Burma was very interesting because all of the food is donated by the people. Sometimes it's one person or two people or family or sometimes a whole village will come together because they have so much respect for the fact that people are meditating, they come and they offer the food. Now, sometimes the people offering the food were very wealthy, and so the food was very nice. And many times, the people offering the food, while always giving the best of what they could, sometimes they were very, very poor people, just dressed in rags. And they would be offering the food and it would be really miserable food, like almost nothing to eat. So this particular day, the main course, it was, it was a day when a poor family was offering the food, and the main course was this very bitter vegetable soaking in oil. And as you chewed the vegetable, it turned into a ball of wooden pulp in your mouth. <laughs> 
And it was one of those really kind of odd experiences where you look around to see what everybody else is doing <laughs> with the ball of wooden pulp in their mouth, you know, whether they're spitting it out or they're swallowing it or whatever. And it was a really kind of unpleasant meal, although beautifully offered. And I remember this woman, this friend, was offering me the um, bowl of the vegetable to see if I wanted seconds. And I just, <laughs> I flashed back to that meal in Sydney, that wonderful meal that we had shared, which had been so elegantly served in the harbor and the lights and how wonderful it was. And it's extraordinary. Sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's a few days, sometimes it's a few hours, sometimes it's a few minutes. But the vicissitudes, the changing nature of life, is continually presenting itself. The Buddha talked about it in terms of pleasure and pain, constantly revolving, it being the very fabric, the very nature of life. And praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, constantly coming and going outside of our control and always changing. If you think about just praise and blame, how many times, even in the very same action, some people will praise us and some people will blame us. Really outside of our control. Many years ago, there was an interview with me published in The Inquiring Mind, which is the journal of the Vipassana community. I was actually out of the country when it came out. I came back home, I was in California, and I asked somebody, well, did that ever come out? And this person said, oh, it came out, it was great, it was fantastic, it was wonderful. It was every nice thing one would want to hear. Then the next day, I was with another friend, and we were talking about a mutual friend of ours. And quite out of the blue, this woman said, oh yeah, you know, she read your interview in The Inquiring Mind, and she told me she found it horrifying. And I thought, horrifying. I mean, she could have said she didn't like it, but horrifying. And I felt all dejected from that. The very same actions, the same interview, born out of whatever motivation and skill I could bring to it. Here was praise. Here was blame. It's really outside of our control. One of the things that the Buddha said which I found quite interesting, is when he said, there's always blame in this world. And there's a little story around when he is supposed to have said this. There was a man who, in this story, came to the monastery to try to find out something about the Buddha's teaching. He came upon a monk who was sitting in silent meditation and didn't really want to be disturbed. And so even as this man asked his question, the monk remained silent. He didn't say anything. And the man became furious, and he just stomped away. Then he came back the next day, and he came upon a different disciple of the Buddha's, one who was very renowned for not only his meditative attainment, but for his intellectual and theoretical grasp of the teachings. So when this man asked him to explain some of the teachings, the monk began but went into a very elaborate and extensive analytical view. And the man, again, became very angry, just furious, and he stomped away. Then so he came back a third day, and he came upon another monk, another disciple. 
Now this monk had heard what had happened on the first day and had heard what had happened on the second day. So in response to the man's questions about the teachings, it said that he was very careful to say just a little bit, not too much and not too little. And the man said something to him like, how dare you treat such deep and profound matters so sketchily? And he became really furious and he stomped away. So somebody went to the Buddha and said, the Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day, this is what happened on the second day, and this is what happened on the third day. What do you think? The Buddha replied by saying, there's always blame in this world. If you stay silent, some people will blame you. If you say too much, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. So the question is, given that our lives continually move between these contrasts of pleasure and pain and praise and blame and gain and loss and fame and disrepute, how can we absorb this? How can the human heart live with all of this and be able to hold it with coherence, with harmony, with some sense of steadiness, of peace. Instead of feeling shattered, as though we can't tolerate these changes, how can we stay whole and in harmony with all of this? And not only stay whole in the sense of maintaining ground, but how can we be free? Often, our hearts and our minds we respond to these changes with a swing between elation and despair. It's like careening wildly back and forth and over and over again. Or else we may have the indifferent feeling of not noticing or of repressing, of anxiety, of not being able to fully connect. These immense changes in our lives happening all of the time what in the Taoist tradition is called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So how can we be fully connected? How can we be present with 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows without withering? It's taught that our minds or our hearts can wilt, they can wither, just like a flower can when it's out in the sun for too long. How can we be present without being brittle, without being rigid? That is the characteristic of equanimity or of detachment, of dispassion. It's an ability to arrest the mind before it falls into wild extremes, before these very violent movements for or against can take root. Again, it's not an easy state to understand or to describe because it's not an emotional emptiness. It's not a feeling of being barren and withdrawn from things. That withdrawal is actually a very subtle form of ill will. Equanimity is a feeling of being able to accept things as they are, to say, this is how things are, and to be at peace. It's often likened to being like the earth, where all kinds of things are cast upon the earth 
beautiful things and frightening things and so on. But the earth doesn't reject that. It doesn't, it doesn't need to get rid of that. It can hold that. The earth can sustain its own integrity. Often this quality of equanimity can evoke a certain sense of passivity, of not caring about things. And seen in that light, it has a certain tone of being dull, being heartless. But what it actually is, is an unshakable balance of mind that's not born out of emotional emptiness, but is born out of a sense of fullness, of understanding, of being complete and being in harmony. Its unshakability isn't something that's cold and dead, but it's a manifestation of great strength because it's composed of honesty, really seeing what is, and confidence, a sense of being able to bear it, and fullness and serenity and peace. So it's quite an extraordinary state that isn't cold and withdrawn at all. When equanimity is strong in the mind, it serves to balance other very beautiful and essential mind qualities. Just as we have been talking about the quality of metta, that relationship of friendship with oneself and with all that lives. We develop metta not only towards those beings whom we like or those aspects of ourselves that we like, but also we develop metta towards those with whom we have difficulty and those that we don't even know, those who are close to us and those who are far away. We develop metta towards all beings everywhere as a basic statement of purpose without selecting and without excluding because of our understanding of our interconnectedness. And it is equanimity that allows the sense of loving connection to embrace everybody impartially, to be able to consider ourselves as fellow wayfarers. It's the quality of equanimity that allows metta to be boundless and not confined to those whom we know or those whom we like, those who have been generous towards us, those who have helped us in some way, but to everybody. It's equanimity which endows love with a sense of patience, being able to be constant, to endure. You know, one of the great um, traps of doing metta is a sense of demand, like, be happy already, you know? I've sent you metta all week. Why aren't you happy? (laughs) But it is equanimity that allows us to endure, to be constant, to be at peace with the giving without the demand of a certain return, even through all of the ups and the downs, to be present, to honor the sense of connectedness. That is the gift of equanimity. We talk about the development and the opening of the heart to compassion, that trembling or the quivering of the heart in relationship to pain. It is equanimity which endows compassion with courage to be able to open to all living beings everywhere, near and far, so that we can see pain without fear. We can 
Avoid getting lost in aversion, in striking out against, in pushing away, but rather are more able to stay open. This is equanimity. We come to it through purification of the mind, through letting go of unnecessary things. It's seeing not that we have certain qualities or attributes that are miserable and we need to cast them away because we hate them or we fear them, but it is actually seeing that there are so many things that we are holding that we do not need. And in seeing that, we are more able to let go of them. We purify the mind of the qualities, of the habits that cause us suffering, the very things that we do not need. We purify the mind in so many ways, not just in the formal act of meditation. We purify it through the practice of generosity in the world, which is a transformation of our attitude. When we're feeling greedy or feeling a lot of desire, then that is a force of longing which draws everything in towards us so we can hold on to it. It is constantly seeking that movement to us. Whereas giving is a complete reorientation. It is changing the energy around into opening or yielding, into surrender, into offering. That is what is purifying about generosity beyond what we give and its value in conventional terms. It is that heart space, it is that mind state of opening, of being able to let go. We purify the mind and we touch a greater equanimity through recognizing the force of gratitude. Instead of walking around through a day focusing on what it is that we don't have and who we are not, you know, we are not enough, I am not enough, we also change that basic orientation to come to realize that we have a great deal, no matter what season it is. This can be the most beautiful season of our lives. To be able to give, to be a benefactor, and to be able to be grateful are very powerful, purifying forces. We also generate or cultivate that sense of equanimity through the power of renunciation. Renunciation as a force goes back to something we talked about earlier in the retreat. It is a question that we ask ourselves, what is it that I actually need in order to be happy? Do I need anything in order to be happy? Sometimes I think about my very first trip to India and how grateful I am that I didn't arrive with a whole long list of things I thought I needed in order to be happy, like hot water or water, (laughs) because I could never have stayed. And it was the most important time of my life. But if I had come with that list, I would never have been free to stay. And so you can see how 
that list of needs really constricts us, it binds us, it doesn't make our worlds bigger, it makes them much smaller. Renunciation is knowing what we need in order to be happy and being able to let go. There's a teaching in the Tibetan tradition which defines renunciation as accepting what comes into our lives and being able to let go of what leaves our lives. That is renunciation. It's being at peace with what is. And we purify the mind. We come to the experience of equanimity through wisdom, which is where the most steadfast dispassion, the most steadfast love comes from. That means many things for us, wisdom. One of the very important things that it means is not to try to control that which is uncontrollable. When we did that trip to Asia, where um, I told that story about Thailand, we went to all of these different countries and we were with this group of friends so that different friends who had experience in different countries were kind of guiding our time in those different places. We were in India and we were about to go to Nepal. We were just about in the airplane crossing the border, just about to land when the friend who was sort of in charge of our time in Nepal turned to us and he said, now you understand that it's all ungovernable, don't you? And he was right. Nobody was where they were supposed to be quite. (laughs) Nothing worked out just as it was supposed to work out. It was all fine, but it was different from what we thought. And he just didn't want to be held responsible for the changing nature of the universe. (laughs) We see that we cannot control that which is impossible to control. One meaning of the term anatta, which is usually translated as selflessness or egolessness, actually refers to the fact that there is no control. There is no being inside of us that can dictate the course of events to our satisfaction. This body and this mind and this universe are functioning according to certain laws, and that is how it is such as the alternation of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. There's no little entity inside that's pulling the strings and that can say, okay, I thought about it really carefully and it seems to me that for the rest of this retreat I'll have no more sleepiness. I'll have no more unhappiness and I'll have no more fear. It doesn't work like that. There is no being inside. When conditions come together for a certain effect to arise, this is what happens. It's a process that's happening according to its own laws that are the laws of nature. We learn to live in harmony with them, which does not mean that we are oppressed by them or held back by them. It means that we open up to what is possible and how things work. It's like a paradigm shift that we make from one worldview to another. Instead of trying to control what is uncontrollable, we learn to open, we learn to connect, we learn to be dispassionate, we learn to find our happiness, not in terms of what is happening, 
but in terms of the purity and the power of our awareness of what is happening. Instead of trying to deny change or cover up insecurity or deny emptiness or deny death, we find that we don't have to close off, we don't have to shrink away, that we don't have to feel alone, that we can open. And there is serenity, there is peace in that very movement of opening in the mind. And quality of mindfulness is really an extraordinary quality because it can go everywhere. Mindfulness does not take the shape of what it is watching. We can be mindful of anything at all. And so it is not a question of being destroyed by change. Oh, you know, my mindfulness was really going well because everything felt really good. But now that it feels bad, it means it's gone. There's no obstruction to it in that sense. And that is why it is a very liberating quality. There are other very beautiful and powerful qualities that we cultivate in practice, such as concentration. But concentration has a certain fragility, such as, for example, it is much easier to concentrate in a quiet place than in a noisy place. Whereas we can be mindful of the quiet, we can be mindful of the noise. And so it is free, and we are free. There is no time or place when it is not applicable, when it is worth saying, waiting, 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 waiting. We can always be mindful. And in the mindfulness itself, we will find that extraordinary type of happiness, which is not bound, which is not contained in any experience. When we are trying to preserve our pleasure, because that is where we believe our greatest happiness will be, and we are trying to encase it or enclose it and hold on to it, and we're trying to cut off painful feeling because we're afraid of it or we think that it is unbearable, then we become quite deadened to things. There's a certain rigidity and narrowness that sets in in the mind. I think this is similar to what the Buddha meant when he said that heedfulness or mindfulness is the path to the deathless. and said that those who are heedless or mindless are as if dead already. Many times in our lives, we may feel as though we're kind of dead already. That is why our effort in practice is to let go of unnecessary things so that we can wake up, so that we can be happy, so that we can be alive. That is our call to awakening, that it is possible right here and now. Wakefulness is so compelling because it is right here. It's powerful when we see it in ourselves and it's powerful when we see it in others. It's like waking up from a dream and discovering who we truly are. The movement along a path, along a spiritual path, can be a little bit peculiar because it may not be very linear. Changing our views about things can be quite radical, but is not necessarily remote or far away. It's 
not out there in some far distant future which we might someday touch if we're very lucky, if we work hard enough. And we can travel a long way and have a lot of different kinds of experiences, but basically freedom is not about accumulating new experiences. It's about purifying the mind from unnecessary things. It's about dispassion. It's about letting go. It's about quieting or stilling that very impulse to acquire and to push away. It's letting go of unnecessary things, which is not far away at all, but it's a very big change sometimes. I think sometimes of a friend of mine who sat the very first three-month retreat that we ever taught many, many, many years ago, before we found this place, we had been unable to find a place um, for the retreat to buy, and so we ended up renting a, a facility in Maine, which was also a Catholic novitiate. When we first got there, there was a very beautiful chapel, which was filled with pews. So we took all of the pews out so that we could sit, use it as a meditation hall, and stored them in a back room. My friend was sleeping in that room. That was his, his place for the retreat. Somewhere during the retreat, he began to feel a lot of physical pain, which was very disquieting. He was quite annoyed about it. So we spent a while kind of searching the monastery for the perfect chair so that he could sit and be comfortable. Unfortunately, he didn't find it. So driven to desperation, he decided that what he would have to do would be to design the perfect chair so that he could sit in it without any pain. And he was going to design it and then sneak into the workroom every night and steal the materials and use the equipment there to build the perfect chair. He had it all planned out about how he was going to go in there and get the stuff and build the chair and so on. And all his troubles would then end. So he went and he looked at the workroom and he looked at all the tools and he got everything together in his mind and he sat down back in his room to design the absolutely perfect chair which was going to make him perfectly happy. So he's sitting there in one of the pews and designing and actually noticed that he was getting happier and happier. <laughs> at first he thought he was so happy because he was really coming close to the design of the absolutely perfect chair. But then he realized that he was happy because he was sitting on one of the pews and it was actually very comfortable. So he looked up and there were over 200 pews in that room. And all he had to do from the beginning was just sit down right where he was. Instead, he took an immense mental journey. He could have just sat down. Sometimes that comes up in my mind when I think about meditation practice. It's a lot simpler than we can imagine. And there's a lot more right here for all of us than we sometimes see. We have to know how to look. We have to know how to reorient the mind. Not to be confused by unnecessary things. Not to be driven by old habits of seeking and wanting and pushing away. It may not be a long journey in terms of going from here to there, but it's a major transformation of view of how we see things. 
It's about knowing who we are most deeply, being able to accept that things change, that there's pleasure, that there's pain, not trying to control what we can't control, but to see clearly what is and who we actually are. This is the truth that allows us to see that happiness is limitless, that it is not contained in a certain object or person or experience, and it never could be, that it is much vaster than that, and we are much vaster than that. This is a far more perfect happiness. This is a happiness that is not based on conditions being a certain way. So from the beginning to the end, it reflects the power and the purity and the freedom of our own minds, of mindfulness. I'll close with a quotation from Yeats, who said, We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us, that they may see their own images, and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life, because of our quiet. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.